video for a second here. Tests, traffic, Twitter. Oh, it's all so overwhelming and stressful. But who has time to relieve stress when it's constantly building and building? Well, we hope you do. Because studies have shown that too much stress leads to headaches, higher blood pressure, an upset stomach, memory loss, disrupted sleep, and increased risk for heart attacks. Stress does a number on your mind and body, draining your immune system and messing with your ability to concentrate. Having tense, sore muscles, shallow breath, increased heart rate, these are all signs that you might be too stressed out. Hmm. Anybody stressed here today? Look like Pastor Jeremy's getting stressed, just talking about goats. Who's stressed? You got some of you raise your hands. I see some stress out there. Yeah, that's true. We've got one solution anyway, right here. I... (laughs) It's funny when you, when you see, uh, the, you know, the English language is an, an interesting thing because you can turn words backward, and of course they have probably no relationship to desserts, but I like to think that because my name, Dennis, if you spell it backwards, anybody know what that spells? Yeah, sinned. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully there's no correlation there, but <laughs> the fact is that stress is something that tears us apart, and stress is natural. I mean, God created us to respond to stress in a healthy way. You know, we know scientifically that cortisol gets, it's a, it's a hormone that gets pumped into your body and it, that's your fight or flight response to some type of stress. The problem is as human beings, we carry it around and we don't turn it off and then it, it, it deteriorates our thinking ability and our concentration and our focus and and it uh, affects things. So there's different kinds of stress. There's task-related stress. We had all these graduates up here, and I'm sure that they just walked through a time of incredible stress. Of course, they're relieved now, and then some of them haven't still graduated. I mean, there's some schools that are still not done with that, but I'm sure that there were tests, and I'm sure that there was procrastination, and I'm sure people stayed up at night. And All of us have projects from time to time, whether it's at work or school or home, and you know how it is when those projects are staring you in the face, or maybe you walk by it every day as you go in the garage and you see all the stuff that you already got to do the project, but the project's not done and it's looming and you need to get it done. Keeps you up at night. You know what? I, I read an interesting book a couple, well, a few months ago, and it, it talked about the fact that our mind is an amazing, it's just an amazing gift God gave us. Our mind actually keeps thinking about things. And if you have a list in your mind of things that need to get done, your mind keeps circulating that list. And if you're good at putting down lists and then actually doing the list, how many make lists? How many don't usually get the list done, though? Guess what? Your mind knows that. So your mind basically says, I know you wrote this down but I know you didn't mean it, and you're not going to do it, so I'm going to keep reminding you. That's why in the middle of the night, you'll wake up and you'll think, oh, yeah, that thing. And then you're, you're kind of tempted to just lean over and write something down quick or maybe put it in your phone, but then your mind knows you're not going to still do it. So it just keeps bringing it up over and over and over, and that creates stress. We have deadlines that loom, and I don't know, how many feel like, honestly, you do operate better under a time deadline procrastination? certain people do. No one wants to admit it because we're not supposed to be like that. But the fact is, a lot of us, you know, you wait to the last minute, and it's amazing what you can do in the last minute. You've had a month, but a month ago you couldn't have got it done. But now that the pressure's on, it's like your mind flows faster and ideas come quicker, and Google is amazing. You just come up with any ideas. And then you run into roadblocks that create bigger problems, and sometimes you procrastinate because of that. 
And there's times where you start to work on something, and maybe it's on your house, and maybe it's this window you know we need replaced, and then as you pull the window out, you realize, oh no, there's dry rot, and now I need to fix the siding, and that means painting, and it all grows, right? Stress. Oh my goodness. Then there's pressure from the team you're on because you need to finish this, and it's your part of the project, and they know it, or maybe it's part of your family, or maybe it's your spouse, and they love you, but they need it done, and so they gently try to persuade, and maybe that creates stress. Maybe it's bills. Which one to pay first? Or how are you going to all get them done? And you do the math and you can't figure it out because there's no way it's going to work and you've got more month at the end of your money. Maybe it's moving. You know, the, the Devoles, they moved this weekend and, and they did a great job of packing, but just that pressure of packing and even just finding boxes sometimes can be stressful. And then once you've moved, it's not over yet because then you've got to put everything away and you've got to fit it in and stress schedules and your kids have a schedule and your family has a schedule and work has a schedule and church has a schedule and you got to try to merge them all and we have all these tools now that are supposed to help us merge these things and then they add stress i don't know if you've noticed this but on the church website now we've added the google calendar to it and it's updated automatically but there's still a layer of stress because in the office I, on my google calendar i have in my calendar the blue things are my personal schedule which include my family schedule. And then the yellow things are staff-only things, like, you know, who's got a day off? That doesn't need to go on the church, you know, website. But then there's church-scheduled events. But in addition to that, there's youth events and children's events. It's pressure. It's stress. And it all adds up. And it's all circulating in your mind, and you're trying to work it out. And maybe you've got a birthday party or a grad party coming up, and you know that there's things that have to happen to make that work, and the lawn needs cut, and... Maybe touch up some paint and then somebody's going to be in your house and you don't want them to think that you don't clean well or whatever it is. Then there's relational stress. And they tell us that relational stress is actually higher than all those stressful things I just mentioned. Some of those play into the relational stress, obviously, if you've got someone saying, hey, when are you going to get this done? But relationships are more important a lot of times to us. And because of that, that relational stress starts to grow. And probably the first thing everybody thinks of is marriage. And while marriage is a wonderful thing, it creates stress. As a minister, I get to walk a lot of people through the premarital part of marriage. And it's an interesting thing. It's kind of like standing up here. Because up here, I can see the whole crowd. And I can see, you know, who's looking and paying attention or taking notes. Or maybe they're making a laundry list. I don't know. But premarital is kind of like that because I can watch a young couple and, you know, they're at that stage where everything's perfect and nothing will ever, they'll always be in love forever and, and that's awesome. And you want them to continue that, but there's some realities that you want to communicate to them because even that part of the relationship is going to be stressful. So then I start asking questions about silly things, which aren't silly, of course, but like flowers and pictures and who's going to be standing up with you, and who's going to be walked in, and what parent, and then all of a sudden, the relational stresses start to come out, and they start to grow, and especially if the family units are complicated, and well, I've got my stepdad, I've got this, and I don't want to hurt this person's feeling, and I've got to find a job for my cousin because she had a job for me and her way. Stress, and it's relationships, and they start to crush in and power us down, and it's starts to add up. And marriage, you know, money and intimacy and kids and time, stress. Then there's the holidays, right? So we go, your mama's or my mama's? What, do you, don't you love my mama? 
Well, what about when, right? Stress. It's crazy. Maybe you've lost connection with your son. Maybe it was something that was said. And that relationship, every time you think about it, it just adds stress and it drives you nuts and you've drifted apart and you want to restore it. But it's not up to just you. It's complicated because those, that relational stress involves two people. And maybe there's more than two. Maybe there's someone else in their ear and you don't know who it is, but you know you feel like as you're talking to them, you're really arguing with someone else's logic and it adds stress. Maybe you've got a roommate. Does anybody here have a roommate? Anybody? Like you got roommates? Who's the messy one? You can't raise your hand because it's stressful, right? Because somebody doesn't put stuff back the right way in the fridge. You know there's an order sometimes to the way the fridge should look. You know that, right? And then somebody comes and says, oh, I can't find the eggs. And I'm like, well, they're right there. And you're like, what do you mean? They're right there. Like, if you would just move this, you would stress. It's relational stress. What about friends? You know, I think, I think back over the friends that I have over the years, and, and a lot of us are just, you know, we cheer each other on, but then there's that one friend that you feel like for some reason you're just in competition with. You know what I'm talking about? And every time that they have a wonderful thing happen in their life, you, you find it hard to cheer them. You, you feel like more like, oh, man, now I got to do something great. It's almost like you're in competition for no reason. And then when you have something great happen, what do you do? You make sure and let them know, Right. So that they know you're up now. And then this, and why? Why do we do that? It's stress. Or maybe you have unequal relationships, and as you kind of evaluate the relationships you're in, you realize, they're my best friend, but I'm not their best friend. They've got other friends. They've got other closer friends. Or maybe you're one of those friends, or the friendship was one of those that you found out later was, was one of those situational friendships where you just happened to work together. So during the time you worked together, you were good friends, but now you've You've got maybe different jobs in the same company, and you see them, and you think, we were really good friends, but maybe we weren't, because now we're not. It's weird. It's just stress. So what do you do about all that? How do you change that stress in relationships? You could just, you know, bail, right? You could just withdraw. You could be a hermit and not have to deal with it. No brain, no headache, right? You could do that. You could internalize it all and be angry or depressed or whatever. But the problem with those solutions is that we were born, we were created to have relationship. When God made Adam in the garden, you know, and he had him name all the animals, he comes to him and he looks at him and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not healthy. We're not created like that. So what he did is he created a companion that would fit Adam perfectly And when I say that, I almost say it tongue-in-cheek because we know that men and women don't fit perfectly, right? What it does is it creates relational stress. I think what God did when he was designing that relationship was he was also creating a relationship that would grow us and hone us and, and chip off the rough edges and create us into a person that he needed us to be. When he said it wasn't good for us to be alone, it wasn't just about having that relationship and not being alone, but it was also that the relationship would create and make us into who we needed to be. But the stress doesn't go away. It doesn't end. None of thing in life is really like the fairy tale where they go through all the hardship and the, and the, and the problems and then the, the, the prince comes and they get together and they're happily ever after. Right? That's not what happens. Stress goes on. Because the relationship goes on. And how many times those of us who are older, maybe you've heard a, a young person, maybe, maybe a sophomore in high school or something, and they'll say something like, this is the worst day ever. 
Nothing could be worse than this. And you're looking at them from the position of experience and say, oh, honey, it gets way worse than this. (laughs) I know it's hard, but you know what? There's more stress coming. You never say that because that doesn't help. But the fact is, it's like that. And life is complicated because every relationship you have, you're, you're in a relationship with someone who's a multidimensional person because they're in relationship with a bunch of other people. Let's just do this real quick. I want you to raise your hand. Anybody in here, raise your hand if you're a son. Oh, why? that's weird. Every guy, raise your hand. Okay, if you're a daughter, if you're a mother, if you're a sister, if you're an aunt, if you're an uncle... If you're the boss, if you're an employee, right? If you're a coworker, isn't that weird? We're all so many different people. And as you look at a person, nobody's one-dimensional. The fact is we're an amalgamation of all these responsibilities. And that's one of the reasons that relationships are very, very tough and stressful and complicated. But here's what I want us to think about for a minute today. Relationships matter. They are crucial. God invented them in the very beginning, and most of the Bible, I would say, tell us how to manage and navigate these relationships. We like to sometimes take the Bible and just make it very specific about rules and, 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 and just narrow it down to what we're good at. But the fact is, most of the Bible, as you read it and you read it from this perspective, you realize, oh, I need correction there and there and there and there. And it all comes down to relationships. In fact, when Jesus was asked, what are the most, the two most important commandments in the Bible? The ones that he pointed out were all about relationship. Look Look at what he said. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord, that's relationship, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That is pretty much all of relationship. Then he took it from that vertical relationship to the horizontal. And he says, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. We can't get out of it. There's no wiggle room here. He's saying your relationship with everybody around you is vital and it's important. And you need to value that person as you would value yourself. Boy, that's hard to do. It's really hard to do. And as you look, as I said, through the Bible, you'll see it come up over and over and over. And you don't have the option of saying, this is too tough, too much stress, I want out. I want to live on an island by myself. doesn't work that way. In fact, John follows up later in the Bible in 1 John 4.20. He says, if a person says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. It's harsh, isn't it? Liar. If a person does not love his brother whom he has not seen, how can he love God whom he has not? Oh, sorry. If he does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God who he has not seen? Oh, man. No wiggle room. It's tough. I would guess that every one of us have at least one relationship which we need some help with. Probably all of us. Maybe more. Maybe some of you, because they were doing this in our Sunday school class. We kicked off a new Sunday school class um, called I Marriage by Annie Stanley today for uh, just married, married couples. And it's, it was really challenging us. And what was really, uh, I love that this class does this. We have individuals in there who are really honest, even though their wife is sitting right next to them, <laughs> or husband, regardless. One of them said, 
you know, I was sitting there hoping she would be listening to this. Like, I kept wanting to say, yeah, that's for her, that's for her. And then I realized, oh, wait, it's actually for me too. Ouch. I bet there's somebody here saying, yeah, hopefully they listen and we can get this fixed. Or maybe there's a young person here saying, maybe what Pastor Dennis will say today will get the parents off my back because that's my relationship that causes me the most stress. You know what we want? This is what we all want, right? We want somebody to say, she's wrong and you're right. Don't we want to just be right? We always want to be right. I mean, there's something about it that's gratifying, and we just want to say, I'm right. You're wrong. I'm right. Can we just all say that real quick, because you'll feel good at least right now. Let's just say, on three, we'll say, I'm right. One, two, I'm right. Were you waiting to do it after three? Haven't we gone over this? I said, on. let's do it one more time, on three. One, two, I'm right. I'm right. I just have to laugh even saying that because you know what? We're so seldom right. But we want to be so desperately. We want someone else to jump into the situation and say, they're wrong, you're right. The problem is we're not alone in this. As you look at the Bible, we see this all the time. Peter always wanted to be right. He's one of those guys. Can't you see it? Just knowing his character from, from the stories you see in the Bible. He was always wanting to be right. So there's a really funny little segment in the Bible in Matthew chapter 18 where Peter runs up to Jesus and he says, he came to him and he asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Can you imagine? Do you, do you realize he had probably somebody in mind? He probably had somebody in mind. And he was at least on six, maybe on seven. And what was he asking Jesus? Tell me I'm right. Tell me he's wrong. Jesus didn't ever play into people's games like that. We think he'll play into ours. And we go to him with these, these weird machinations and these, these, these little refinements and these nuances, and we want him to take our side, and he doesn't do it. And Jesus answers him, and he says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. It's pretty funny, really. He gives him math. He just throws math at him. And I'm sure Peter's head is spinning and trying to do the math. And what Jesus was really saying is, no, you always forgive. There's no limit. I want a limit. Don't you want limits? We all want lines. And we want to be able to say, you cross that line. It's your fault. I'm right. You're wrong. And Jesus doesn't play that. What he does is he goes beyond that. And you say, well, can I forgive only up to here? And he says, no. Always forgive. No limit. Always forgive. The Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, they did this to Jesus too. They dragged this woman in front of him and they said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses says to Stoner, What do you say? What do you say? And Jesus again, he's not going to be caught in that who's right, who's he's just not going to be caught that way. Now, of course, she was in sin, and later in this little little uh, story, we see that Jesus tells her, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all gone. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't condone her sin. But he's not going to tell them that. What he does tell them is to act right, to respond rightly. That's what Jesus does every time. He doesn't just say, you're wrong, you're right, but he tells us to take that and for us to respond correctly in whatever situation is bringing us stress. And none of us get this perfect. I mean, none of us are, are, are great at it. You know, none of us come out of the womb just, you know, wonderful people who get every relationship 
right? We learn through trial and error. We learn from our parents, first of all, and then other adults and people that we see in relationships. So it's no, no wonder that a lot of times we get to a point where we're just confused about how to do this. But here's what Jesus, I believe, was trying to tell us. He says that we, when being right becomes our obsession, then responding right takes a back seat. When being right becomes our obsession, then responding right takes a back seat. You might be saying something like, my mom just doesn't get it. She doesn't see. She doesn't understand. You actually might be right. But are you responding right? Maybe God's trying to teach you to respond right, and he's using a situation like this because, young person, this is not going to be the first time you're misunderstood. Adult, it's not the first time, not the last time. You will walk through this over and over and over, and what needs to change is not for you to walk around and say, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, but for you to walk around and start to respond right, for you to change from the inside and respond right. Maybe this is a proving ground for you, and you're actually in a safe place to learn to respond right. Maybe doing it your way isn't right. I know some of you are like, no way, I'm always right. I, I mentioned this the other day, and it stuck with me a lot lately, but my dad used to always say there's more than one way to skin a cat. I'm not necessarily a cat person. I like cats that act like dogs. But I've never one time in my life ever considered skinning one. And usually when he would say that, that's where my mind would go, and I would totally forget whatever point he was trying to make. <laughs> I was just thinking of the absurdity of skinning a cat, and why would my dad ever say that? He was a nice, sweet guy. Now it's more clear because I'm over the emotional weirdness of that whole thing. But I want to be right. But sometimes it's not about being right. Sometimes it's just about responding right. Maybe he's trying to teach you that. And a soft answer turns away wrath and try to be understood or to understand before being understood and listen more than you talk. And getting right to the heart of this, Peter, remember who wanted to only forgive a limited amount of time. He wanted to be right. Later in his own gospel, it looks like he may have learned some things from being with Jesus. He says in 1 Peter 5, in the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. I wish we could stop right there, don't you? Wouldn't that be nice? Well, it's nice as long as you're the elder. Let me just stop. Okay, so he says, and all of you dress yourselves in what? Hmm. How many love that? All of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think it's awesome that this is Peter. Because this is not the Peter we see in the Gospels. This is a Peter whose life had been transformed by spending time with Christ, by seeing the crucifixion and the resurrection, by being filled with the Holy Spirit, and becoming a person who had dramatically changed. This is Peter. Peter says this. He he promises grace and honor to the humble, and he, he promises God's opposition to the proud. I think it's appropriate, though, he starts with younger. Remember when you were younger and you knew it all? Remember that? And then as you get older, you realize that my parents are way smarter than I thought. 
and they knew more than I thought. And when they, when they said certain things that seemed so ridiculous at the time, now I totally get it. I know exactly what they meant. I think of Mark Twain where he said, um, uh, he says what he preferred to do with children is to put them in a barrel and then just leave a little hole there for them to look out. And then when they became adolescents, he said, then you plug the hole. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> the thing is, though, Peter didn't stop with the young. Because we all think we know it all. And we all want to be right all the time. And we want someone else to, to justify that. And we want someone else to agree with us. And he says, all of you, all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. It's character building to clothe yourself with humility. And when we're misunderstood, we demand to be heard and we demand respect and we demand attention. Let me ask you just a couple questions in our response. Someone likes the guy you liked. What, do you, what is your first response? What was your first response? Was it humility? Was it putting them first? No. You're in the stands watching your kid play and a parent near you doesn't know it's your kid and your kid makes a little mistake and they start yelling at your kid. What's your response? Mm-hmm. When you're playing a game, maybe it could be even a table game in your own house and somebody humiliates you or you, what's your response? Bullied. You have a demeaning boss. Paul and in Philippians, talks about humility. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. This wasn't self-hatred. He wasn't deluding himself. He knew he was God. He chose to do this. He knew he was, let me make it personal. He knew he was right. Do you see this? He was always right. But he chose to humble himself and to serve the humanity that he created. How do you make yourself nothing? I mean, it's, it's an ongoing process of dying to self over and over and over. This might be a helpful phrase for you. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Is anybody like that? (laughs) What do you think? You know, maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? Let's not say it out loud, but could you just say it quietly to yourself for a minute? See how that feels going through your mind. You know, maybe I'm wrong. For some of you, it might be the first time you've thought that today. Maybe I'm wrong. Or this week. Or ever. Do you you know how empowering and respectful it is to somebody to say that? To actually listen to what they think? Do you realize that you could even do that with your children where you might actually ask them? That doesn't mean you're going to, you know, do whatever they think or you become a doormat or whatever. What it means is that you've raised a child and poured into him and they actually do think things. And you need to know what they're thinking and you need to help guide that and you won't know if you don't ask. What it means is that you intentionally humble yourself and solicit ideas from somebody else. Those of you who are kind of type A, you might notice we're going backward in these verses in Philippians, and so here we're going to do it again. 
Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Mm. Maybe you think the situation's beyond repair, and whatever, whatever relationship you are thinking is bringing you the most stress and is the problem, maybe you're thinking it's, I've simplified it, and just you being humble isn't going to fix it. But I'm going to ask you an even more difficult question right now. I'd like to warn you about that so you're prepared and you can listen. Maybe it's not about you, but, but it's always about me, right? Maybe it's supposed to be about Jesus and him forming his character in you. Maybe that's what it's really all about, and that's what it's always been about. And that as he does that, he heals the broken parts in us. Maybe, maybe it's about putting others first and not needing to be right all the time. Maybe it's more important actually how they feel than how you feel and you being right. Maybe it's about how Jesus can work through you and you can forgive what was said, what was done, how you were treated. That person at the light who cut you off, that person who cheated you in business, about your bank account and about those other things. Let me just say this, and I believe this is true. When we focus on Jesus and others, then he'll begin to heal what's broken inside of me, that part of me that needs so desperately to be right. He'll work on that. He'll heal it. I'd like for the worship team to join me up here and begin to play. I've found this to be true in my life. When I finally start to focus on him, he starts healing me and working on me. When I humble myself and begin to serve others, even those I feel like have treated me poorly or wrongly, he starts to work in me. And not when I do it for that reason, like I do it to just show them. It's when I really legitimately, honestly do it that God starts to heal in me and he works on me. I had a weird thought this week. <laughs> you know, when Jesus was on the cross and the thieves were talking to him, there's a couple versions of that in the gospels, but there's one of them that basically the, the one thief says, the one is criticizing Jesus, and the other one says, wait, you don't understand. He's not up here. He didn't do anything. He doesn't deserve to be here. You, you know that's true, right? Basically, what he was saying is Jesus is right, and everything that happened to him is wrong. They're all wrong, but he's right. <laughs> Jesus could have said, you know what? That's right. I'm right. I'm right. You're all wrong. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm out of here. He, he could have done that. But he would have never done that because that's not who he was. That was the very purpose he came is to serve us. And back to Philippians, it says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Then he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. It, it blows my mind to think about the king of the universe humbled himself in front of petty humans who were trying to be right. The humans he created spit on him and they hung him on a tree he created. And why did he do that? He didn't have to be right. 
he responded right. He responded with humility and love that we are supposed to respond with in our relationships. We need to respond right. He responded as we're supposed to respond. It all comes down to forgiveness and humility. How can we see this work in our lives? Sometimes we're too connected to the situation and you need to take a time out and back up a little bit. Sometimes we need to forgive and give the gift of forgiveness to someone we're in relationship with so we can go back a ways to before the fence. Sometimes we need a reset in our relationships. Sometimes we just need to put the other person first and humble ourselves. And you know what? Like Jesus on the cross, it's not right. Because if it was all fair and right, you, you might be right. <laughs> but you need to take the initiative and apologize. Some of us need to blame less and complain less and love more and give more. And you can't do that on your own sometimes. Sometimes the only way to really make that happen is to let that one who humbled himself, the one who was the king and humbled himself under humans, let him come and do a work in our heart that allows us to respond right. I want you to shut your eyes for just a moment. I want to ask, I want to ask if anybody in here is maybe, maybe you're in the middle of a situation like that right now. And you know that this relationship is driving you nuts and bringing you stress. But you desperately need this to change. Let me ask, first of all, let me ask this question. How many of you find that if we were honest before God, not about me, but before God, that you really struggle, you need to be right? Raise your hand if that's you. Let me ask another question. How many of you would raise your hand and say, I need some help in a relationship right now? This could be with a, a, a family member. It could be at work. It could be whatever. I see those hands. You can put them down. I'm going to invite uh, pastors, wives, board wives, prayer team wives to come on up front real quick to be ready to pray. But what I'd like to do is before they, as they're coming, I want to ask one more important question. Maybe you're here today, and, and you don't have a relationship with God, and certainly not like what I've talked about today, but as we've mentioned the fact that he came and he died for you, and he sacrificed for you even though that wasn't right, but he did it because he loved you and he responded right, maybe you would like to start a relationship with him today. Is there anybody here like that? If you just raise your hand and we could pray with you over that. Anybody at all? All right, here's what I'd like to do then. I'd like you all to stand. These people that have come forward, they're here to pray with you because sometimes we need someone to pray over us. You don't, you don't necessarily have to tell them every detail of the situation. You, you may just say, I just need prayer, and then let them pray. You may be here today, and as that word came forward earlier in the service, and you are in need of healing, or you're in need of financial healing, or something like that, and you would like one of us to pray with you, I'll just invite you, as the worship team leads us, I just want to invite you to come down and we'll pray with you.